Good evening, my name is David Leslie, and as the Rothko Chapel's Executive Director, it's my pleasure to welcome you this evening as we continue our celebration of the chapel's 50th anniversary. Please note that English closed captioning is available tonight, which you can turn on by clicking the CC button on the bottom of the video player and select English. When the chapel was consecrated and dedicated, in February 26 through 28, 1971, central to its genesis was a commitment to be a place that would engage life's deepest questions and important societal issues. In addition to being a place for meditation and care of the spirit, the Roscoe Chapel was seen as an institution and a movement that would dil diligently work to further social justice both here in the United States and beyond focused on the charge of engaging, and I quote our founder, a double vocation, a vocation of hospitality and a vocation of denouncing all forms of imperialism, whether political, economic, social, or intellectual. So it's within this context tonight that we continue our four-part series titled Beyond the Rhetoric, Civil Rights and Our Shared Responsibility. This series offers a unique suite of virtual programs featuring keynote speakers and panelists on the front lines of social justice who help us examine, expand, and even revisit our understandings of and approaches to some of the most critical civil and human rights issues of the day. Questions that are being addressed through this series include, how have civil rights historically been understood and applied in this country? who benefits, and who has been left out? Which civil rights and liberties are particularly at risk today? Is it time to rethink basic approaches to the concepts of rights, responsibilities, and civil liberties? How can we become more effective advocates and activists as we work to address injustice and create an equitable society? And how can we sustain our passion for social justice and long-haul activism? Tonight's program, American Indian Worldview and the Concept of Rights, features a moderated conversation with Tink Tinker and Dina Gillio Whitaker that will explore the concept of rights for American Indian people and how the Western framework of rights have been used against the collective interest of Indian people and tribal nations. We are honored to have a good friend of the chapel as our moderator this evening, Suzanne Benali who will introduce both Tink and Dina and elaborate on the program format. Suzanne is Navajo in Santa Clara, Tewa. She currently lives in Santa Fe, New Mexico and serves as the executive director of the Swift Foundation. Formerly, Suzanne served as the executive director of cultural survival, 
an international indigenous people's rights advocacy organization that advocates for indigenous people's rights, self-determination, land, language, culture, and political resilience. Prior to cultural survival, she served as the Associate Vice President for Academic Affairs at Naropa University and was a core faculty member and previous chair of the Environmental Studies Department. Her extensive experience spans work devoted to social justice, diversity, and equity. Suzanne is currently co-chair of the International Funders for Indigenous Peoples and a trustee of the Naropa University Board of Trustees. She is no stranger to the chapel, having served as a cohort member of the Rothko Chapel Spirituality and Social Justice Initiative to further contemporary understandings about the relationship between spirituality and social justice. And she spoke at the chapel in 2017 as part of our Concept of the Divine series. Deeply committed to social, environmental, and climate justice, her work, passion, and interest center on relationships and interconnectedness between land, spirituality, culture, and people as reflected in narratives and stories, both past and present. Please note that during the comments and the remarks and the talk, you're invited to email questions that you may have during the lecture to programs at rothkochapel.org, and Suzanne will do her best to weave those into the conversation with tonight's speakers. Now, before I turn the program over to Suzanne, I want us to take a moment to give thanks for this transformative space by acknowledging that the region in which the chapel was built and the community in which we live and work is the ancestral and unceded land of the Karankawa, Akokisa, Sana, Atakapak, Ishak, and other indigenous peoples. Tonight, we lift up their elders, past and present, as well as future generations mindful that this space is ultimately owned by none, yet open for all. With that, I want to again offer a virtual welcome to everyone who is joining us tonight. And Suzanne, thank you so much for being with us this evening, and we look forward to the conversation. Thank you, David. Um, I'm really honored to be here tonight. As introduced, my name is Suzanne Benali. I'm Navajo in Santa Clara Tewa, but in our tradition, I would say my maternal clan is the Kinslachini clan, the Red House clan, and I was born for the Nasha Sheep clan, the Tewa people. I grew up in a small community, Shiprock, New Mexico, on the Navajo Nation. I'd like again to welcome everyone and greet my fellow presenters, Dr. Tink Tinker and Dina Gilio Whitaker. Before I make introductions, though, I would like to offer some thoughts and reflections on how we reframe tonight's presentations or conversations more than a presentation. When we were invited to engage this discourse, the topic of beyond rhetoric, civil rights, and our shared responsibility, it became immediately problematic for us. One, the discourse of civil rights is not an indigenous concept or discourse. 
It is a discourse that is based on a Western framework as Dr. Tinker describes an abstract Euro-Christian individualist framework. This framework is completely differentiated from an indigenous worldview based on relationships, reciprocity, balance, harmony with all beings, including human beings. Two, we have to understand the foundation for these legal concepts are based on a Westphalian state or system and we have to unpack the problematics and designs of these fundamental concepts from the root. Three, as Native people, we simply cannot drop into these complex discourses and assume these concepts are meaningful and relevant or the same. It is foolish and arrogant for us to do so. We have to name the problem, if not reject and forge new discourses and dialogues that for indigenous peoples is a holistic view embracing our spiritual, political, economic, food systems, kinships, and communities. I believe that for indigenous peoples to thrive, this it needs to fundamentally be based on these new forms of discourses that we put forward. For many Native peoples, this is what our land movement back is about. We also stumble a lot over language and terminology in, in trying to describe our worldview, even to use the term worldview. I find myself stumbling over every other word as I begin to um, engage any of this discourse. But we work with the English language that we have at hand. Um, and uh, we will try to name what we can throughout the discussion. But we can't do all of this in 90 minutes. We can begin to tell these stories. We, we can begin to do the naming, all of which can lead us into conversation, much the way that Dr. Tinker, Dina, and I have done in preparing for this discussion tonight. I invite their stories. I invite the audience to be story listeners. In doing so, we begin to weave with the possibility of a very new story, all engaged in the same story. Throughout the uh, discussions, please send your questions. Uh, we will have a Q&A at the end of the program. I will try to weave your questions in where appropriate, but if Short of that, we will specifically try to address them um, in the final uh, portion of the program. And because many of us, and because we are virtual, and for many of us, it's very a very unnatural and uncomfortable way of um, engaging any of this kind of conversation. So I ask your indulgence if we have technical issues or problems, even with the transitioning. So with that, let me begin by introducing Dina Gilio Whitaker, who is uh, from the Colville Confederated Tribes. 
She is a lecturer of American Indian Studies at California State University, San Marcos, and an independent educator in American Indian environmental policy and other issues. At California State University, San Marcos, she teaches courses on environmentalism and American Indians, traditional ecological knowledge, religion and philosophy, Native women's activism, American Indians and sports, and decolonization. She also works within the field of critical sports studies, examining the intersections of ind indigeneity and the sport of surfing. As a public intellectual, Dina brings her scholarship into focus as an award-winning journalist as well, with her work appearing in Indian Country Today, The Los Angeles Times, High Country News, Time.com, Slate, History.com, Bioneers, Truth Out, The Pacifica Network, Grist, and many more. Dina is the author of two books, the most recent and award-winning book, As Long as the Grass Grows, The Indigenous Fight for Environmental Justice from Colonization to Standing Rock. She is currently under contract with Beacon Press for a new book under the working title, Illegitimate Nation, Privilege, Race, and Accountability in the U.S. Settler State. Welcome, Dina. Also joins us is Dr. Tink Tinker, uh, who is a citizen of the Osage Nation and, the, uh, and is the Clifford Baldrige Emeritus Professor of American Indian Cultures and Religious Traditions at ILIF School of Theology. During his 33-year career at ILIF, Dr. Tinker brought a distinctly American Indian perspective to a predominantly white year Christian school. As he continues to do lectures across the country, a continent, for three decades, he volunteered both administratively and as a traditional spiritual leader with the American Indian Movement of Colorado. His publications include American Indian Liberation, A Theology of Political Theology, Missionary Conquest, the Gospel of Native American Genocide, and a nearly and nearly a hundred journal articles and chapters for edited volumes. Uh, welcome, Tink. Boy. So with that, so with that, let me turn um, to Dina to offer some remarks, and then Tina, if you would just hand it off to Tink when you're done. We'll try to keep the flow even here. Okay, that sounds good. <clears throat> Thank you so much for that warm introduction, Suzanne. Of Why Peace Nuck Silk, Dina Jillia Whitaker. And um, I'm coming to you from the traditional and unceded homelands of the Ahashima Nation in what's currently called Orange County in Southern California. And I am a descendant of the Colville Confederated Tribes, the Sinaixt Band, but I was born and raised in Southern California, so I have not lived in my um, tr tribal homelands. And I come to be uh, raised in Southern California in Los Angeles as a result of federal policy 
of the 1950s and 60s, which was about forcibly removing or certainly encouraging the removal of native people from their homelands in order to dissolve those uh, tribe those tribal communities and reservation lands. So I situate myself historically within all of those processes as we all exist within the context of um, very particular histories. So on that note, my uh, I'm going to take a few minutes to give some opening remarks. And what I thought I'd do is lay a bit of a historical foundation for this topic that we are tackling tonight around human, especially around human rights. So if we talk about civil rights, civil rights is part of a larger discourse about human rights. And, uh, you know, we're, we all tend to think about human rights as being a good thing, something that we should strive for, uh, something that brings justice and fairness uh, to populations that historically have not been treated in a fair or just manner. But when it comes to indigenous issues, there are contingencies, there are specific uh, things that we need to keep in mind. And by understanding the history of the last 500 years uh, of uh, you know, human engagement in the world, um, going back to the European you know, voyages, so-called voyages of discovery uh, in the, the 15th and 16th century. And so if we, talk about the beginning of that, really the, the place to start is with the 15th century Catholic Church and the advent of international law. Because if we look at that foundation, we look at international law, um, we can trace its origins to this time. In fact, we can even trace it um, to before that, to the, the Crusades, the Christian Crusades. Um, when, you know, wars of domination were being fought in the Middle East. But by the time the 15th century comes and Europe is engaging in these vo so-called voyages of discovery, they're going into other lands, they're trying to find <clears throat> new trade routes, um, new resources, and especially gold. And um, this is, of course, feudal Europe. Um, the Catholic Church is uh, completely in control. There is no separation of church and state. The church controls the monarchies um, and funds these voyages. And um, and the, so what happens is the Catholic Church it develops these policies about what's going to happen when the these um, Christian European um, explorers like Columbus and and others. Um, set sail, they know they're going to land somewhere in some new lands. They're not sure exactly where, but they have to have a strategy in place about how they're going to take the lands. And so um, the strategy is essentially about, uh, well, they know that the people that they're going to encounter are not Christians. And so um, it's by virtue of their not being Christians that the rationales and the justifications for the violent taking of land and the enslavement of the peoples they are going to find there um, will happen. And so they devise these documents called um, the Papal Bulls beginning around 1455. Um, and, and, and there are uh, several of them that are created that uh, altogether are about justifying this taking of land and enslaving the, the inhabitants of the lands that they find. And um, in this conception, 
uh, indigenous peoples are considered infidels. They're because they're not Christians. They're infidels. They're heathens and they're savages. That's that's how they spoke about them, and that's by virtue of the fact that they are not Christians, not because they're racially different. And this is a really key point here because they don't know who they're going to encounter. Um, they had encountered people of blacks, you know, black skins from working from being in Africa but um, but the concept of race is not fully um, formed until the 15th century um, in Spain um, but then what happens in 1648 is the the Treaty of Westphalia in which ends um, years and years of protracted wars between Europeans and it leads to this concept of territorial sovereignty and uh, and and what we now know as the modern state system. And, um, and so well, we talk about the Westphalian state and you know, this idea of sovereignty and jurisdiction over, over uh, territories and lands, but by 1648, you know, indigenous peoples whose lands the Europeans are, uh, are coming to um, are already constructed as inferior and as not being capable of ho holding title to lands. And, um, and so this all together with, with uh, the concepts of the, the, um, the Christian church, the Catholic church and the papal bulls, this lays a foundation for something we now know as the doctrine of discovery or what some call the doctrine of Christian discovery. And this doctrine of discovery becomes embedded into um, American law, not just American law, but also Canadian law, uh, Australia, even New Zealand, uh, places of settler populations. And so this, this foundation of the doctrine of discovery in the US is the first uh, legal doctrine that uh, gets articulated in order to control American Indian lands and lives in 1823 with the, the Johnson versus McIntosh decision. It's the foundation of the entire legal system that constructs our relationship as uh, American Indian people to the federal government. And so by the time the 20th century comes, we, we have, you know, initially the League of Nations after the second the First World War, then after the Second World War, the United Nations is formed. Um, but by then it's comprised of, you know, it's comprised of the the world's states and and empires, in fact. And um, and it's based on the Westphalian system, which as we already know, is uh, already a system founded on the violation of rights, the denial of indigenous rights to land, including their own lands and land titles, um, and you know, centuries of dispossession and rationalizing and justifying that dispossession. So, um, so this is what we call uh, human rights. I mean, we have to be really honest uh, about this framework that we call human human rights and how it's. Uh, it's premised on the dispossession of indigenous peoples. And so um, this is really problematic for obvious reasons. Um, but all of this is about the subsuming of indigenous peoples into the colonial state without their consent. So from there, you know, once we acknowledge that, then we can have more uh, candid and um, detailed conversations about what human and civil rights actually are. So, uh, Tink, that's uh, your cue. Thank you, Dina.
thank you for that great foundation upon which to build. I'm going to take a little different tack than uh, Dina's historical beginning. I really want to start with the language of human rights. As she said, everyone must affirm human rights. I mean, after all, it's about human beings. What's wrong with that? But of course, as you think of human rights and the different rights stipulated under law, civil rights, property rights, the Bill of Rights, the constitutional amendments, the right of free speech, uh, religious freedom as a right, and even treaty rights, uh, after all, the only right on my list that is not explicitly an individual right are treaty rights. And as Indian peoples across the continent can tell you, treaty rights don't seem to be worth a plug nickel. Uh, in fact, uh, an Episcopal bishop in 1881 uh, accused the United States of violating all 371 treaties that he counted at that time that had been signed between the U.S. and American Indian people. So the biggest problem is that human rights are quintessentially individualist. After all, that's the worldview of Amer-European Euro-Christian peoples uh, in the world, in Europe and in America. Uh, our worldview is a little different because we're what I would call communityist. That is, we're communal wholes and want to talk about the good of the whole rather than the good of each individual. Uh, I mean, that extends even to uh, a Euro-Christian religion where salvation is an individual affair, right? It's justification by individual faith, uh, according to Reformation theology. So human rights, civil rights are individualist, first of all. But there's another problem that we need to unpack. These words are all very abstract. They're abstract nouns. And in fact, what we're dealing with is Euro-Christian languages, generally speaking, are nominal abstractive. Uh, if you look at a language like German, nouns are so prominent that they capitalize every last one of them. English isn't quite so bad, but all your Christian languages are noun-based. Whereas American Indian languages tend to be unabashedly verb-based. Our languages are action-centered and much more concrete. So in order for us to deal with human rights, first of all, we've got to boil it down to the individual good. But secondly, we've got to learn to deal with those abstractions and deal with them eventually in a Euro-Christian court system where you've got lawyers who are experts in dealing with nominal abstractions. I mean, that's why they get paid the big bucks. There's one other problem. 
That is that human rights and civil rights extend only to human beings. Now, that's shifting a little bit. But for Indian people, let me say from the get-go that we have relatives in this world who are equal to ourselves who are other than human. So that when I go out in the morning and sing my morning song, I look to each of the four directions and I speak in terms of the two-leggeds, the four-leggeds, the flying things and all the living, moving things so that every tree, every mountain, every river, every lake, those are my relatives just as much as the human beings who live around me. So we want to have a relationship of respect with all of those people. Now, uh, as legal theorists have begun to try to extend rights language to other than humans, they've even tried to involve me uh, in some of that discourse, especially scholars at the law school at the University of Denver, for instance. My immediate response is, who am I as a human being to extend rights to trees or bears or sparrows or any other living thing? They have their own lives. And just because we have this thing called human rights in this intense legal discourse uh, unpacking its abstraction, that doesn't mean that it will be immediately understood by daffodils or elm trees or any other person in the natural world other than humans. In fact, it's not well understood by people who have verb-based languages like American Indians. Uh, <coughs> so we might ask uh, the question that, that Rothko Chapel posed in a in an email to us, who benefits from current civil rights and who's been left out? And I would jump to say, first of all, American Indians are left out. You all think you're being terribly inclusive. Rothko Chapel is being inclusive by having Suzanne and Dina and myself on their program tonight. But we're being left out of the abstractness of the language. Let me take one example. The right to own property. And, and you all live with the right to own property. It's an everyday, natural, normal, universal right. Except it's not. In our Indian languages, we have no word for property. It's not an abstraction that we have any awareness of whatsoever. In fact, property rights leaves natives out unless we're willing to convert to your worldview. You see, property divides up the earth, our grandmother, the land, and turns it into property. And that was the first conversion 
those Euro-Christian ancestors engaged in when they formed beachheads in the Caribbean, in Latin America, in Jamestown, or in Plymouth in Boston, as they converted the land to property, commodifiable, objectifiable, thingified property that could be bought and sold. To get us to begin to live that way, to buy into that kind of discourse, means that we have to agree to cutting up our grandmother into separate chunks and divvying out those chunks to private ownership of individuals across the continent. Our own worldview is that we're in a relationship with grandmother, in a close relationship with the earth, with the land. And that's what we lose in your notion of property rights and, and with the notion of human rights that uh, we've been asked to speak to here. So native notion of relationship comes immediately under risk. And just think about how native people have tried to go to bat for grandmother in order to resist this commodification of the land. Think about Standing Rock, South Dakota at Cannonball and the Dakota Access Pipeline, which goes under their water supply. Think about this new move of resolution copper to blow up a whole mountain sacred to San Carlos uh, Apache peoples in order to remove a billion dollars worth of zinc. Again, it's the commodification, the thingification of a mountain. The mountain doesn't matter. It's not a person. It's not alive. It's, in fact, property. No, for us, we're in relationship with that mountain and every mountain. And you can't blow up a mountain without having a pretty good reason to do it that you can sell back to the mountain and explain to the mountain when you do ceremony before blowing the mountain up. Think about Thacker Pass in Lithium, Nevada, or Lithium, America, where uh, now the Biden government is thoroughly invested in making the U.S. lithium independent, quite apart from the relationship that people in northwestern Nevada northeastern California have with the land at that place. They want to have that relationship of respect. And you can't do it if you divide it up into property. That means we're left behind in this rights language unless we convert, get law degrees, and begin to be able to manipulate the abstract language in the Euro-Christian court system because that's where eventually we have to end up defending ourselves these days. We natives have to go to their courts in order to defend our rights. There's something essentially wrong with that. And we need all our Euro-Christian relatives to become our allies in resisting that and changing this systemic hole that has left us way outside of the ball game, not outside of the ball game, but outside of the ballpark itself.
we'd like to be a part of the conversation because we think all human beings on this continent would benefit from engaging a very different relationship with the earth, with the trees, with the buffaloes, and the squirrels, with all living things. Thank you, Tink. Uh, I, I'd like to kind of spend some time having a conversation with each other and um, building on comments uh, that have been made and um, perhaps raising questions or, um, or, or further or critiquing a particular position and view. Um, and this is with the panelists at the moment before we go to audience questions. So let, let me start off here and, and just kind of raise this question because I struggle with it a lot. And I've probably struggled with it my entire life. But as, um, as Indian people, we live with many contradictions in our lives. We, um, and, and a large part of that is just the consequences of the ongoing assaults on our cultures, on our practices, our spiritual practices. We, we have loss of language that carries so much of this meaning. So we, we're forced to use um, the English language, which, you know, you've, you've said, uh, you've, you've just laid out, Tink, the problem with, with language. We have um, education, the education system in itself, and we know the history of, of education in, in this country, but we, today we seek education because we see that as one, one strategy and one path. It, it's just like choosing to be a lawyer. We have the media that's just a, a very influential on all of us and especially on our youth. We have the fast food industry and grocery stores that further removes us from our traditional practices of um, um, uh, growing food or um, acquiring food. So if all these assaults as um, Indian people today, so what can we do or what, what should we be doing or how do we even begin to think about this in terms of um, negotiating these assaults, who we are today, but also maintaining these um, deep relationships that we also understand, the deep relationships with Mother Earth, within our clan systems, within, you know, with, with, the, um, with the natural world. Go ahead, Dina. Well, okay, so I, I think the you know what the question about what should we be doing? I think that there's not, a, of course, any simple answer to that. I think that there are many ways to answer that question, and and for me, it comes down to like what I can do, like what is what is in my wheelhouse or my skill set, or you know how does it appear to me um, about what I should be doing? For me, uh, it's I mean it's it's 
it's multifaceted. Um, you know, it involved, you know, first of all, me coming back to my culture, learning about my culture as somebody who was born and raised in the city during this termination era, you know, during a time when my identity, when, when the point of federal policy was to, to um, erase my identity, right? And that actually happened. I mean, it was very close to happening. Had I not it gone out of my way to go back to my tribal community and reestablish my connection. So, so that was step number one for me was to not allow that process of erasure to happen on myself. Um, from then, from there, you know, it opened up all kinds of other possibilities. How can I, you know, what is it that I'm most committed to? And I, and what I was most um, infuriated about as I learned the actual history that I wasn't been hadn't been taught as a child in my in my public school education, which completely lied about uh, you know the history of this country and genocide and um, you know the the elimination of of native people, was to was to commit to undoing and correcting those those uh, histories and that education and so that's what I do now, but. Um, but beyond that, like there's a million places to go. So for me, it's about what I what I think needs to be done. And the, something that I write about a lot and speak about publicly is how we need to develop the language in English, because that's all we've got right now, that explicitly exposes the worldviews that language does that results in a society based on rugged individualism, based on um, extractive tendencies uh, toward the earth, toward other human populations, and, and understand that the Eurocentric worldview that we are all conditioned to is what continues the perpetuation of our destruction of the earth. Right? So it's about how we understand how Euro... Uh, you know, centuries, centuries, millennia of European thought that is centered has gotten us to this point where we uh, do do not understand ourselves as humans as related to all things in the world, as um, in relationships of reciprocity, in relationships of respect and responsibility to the earth. So for me, that's where um, where it all lies. Like, how do we talk about, how do we create a paradigm shift in our society so that we can uncover that? Because until we change our, our philosophical approach to the way we live on the earth, we are not going to be able to make any kind of meaningful change if uh, if the way that we live on the earth is still based on ideas that the earth was created for us, for humans to exploit and extract, then that's the road to nowhere. That's the road to our own destruction, actually. Um, and, and then, but if we can have these conversations about very different kinds of orientations to the world that does understand limits and does understand um, that that we have to be thinking in a different direction and have relationships of reciprocity and respect, then then it can lead to us asking different kinds of questions about how we imagine the way that we live on the earth 
um, and how we develop technology and how we do government and, and all of those things. So, um, so it's really about how we challenge the ways that we see the world, but we can't, we can't challenge it unless we realize the, the fishbowl that we live in, right? That, the, that it's the waters that we swim in and the air that we breathe, kind of metaphorically speaking. Thank you. Okay, cool. I'll try and follow that up with something equally as eloquent. We'll see. <laughs> yeah, I spent my career teaching in a Euro-Christian school of higher education, a small graduate school, uh, ostensibly a Methodist uh, school of theology, but it was really... Uh, not just ecumenical, but interfaith. But teaching largely Euro-Christian students and coaching them in how to make ideological decisions against their own worldview. Locally here in Denver, for 35 years, I've worked very closely with uh, the American Indian Movement of Colorado. Uh, Suzanne, as you know, uh, trying in our protest to disrupt the everydayness of political, the political systemical uh, and the, the, the normalness uh, of those abstractions that control Indian people. And, and those abstractions, a lot of them were invented in order to control Indian people. Uh, in order to pry the land loose from American Indian people so that uh, uh, the invader class could take them over and turn them into their private property. So we have engaged in protests against uh, all Columbus Day as a state-supported act of hate speech. Uh, we have protested uh, mining companies here in Denver uh, that have been invested in mining on uh, Western Shoshone lands in particular. Uh, we, we've been invested in protest here to support our relatives in Canada during the idle no more uh, protest times uh, up north. And now we've picked up this land back uh, proclamation that, that comes to us from, from Canadian relatives up north. But we need somehow to reach more of those Euro-Christian allies who would, who would be allies if they knew more and, and to convince them, as I talk to my students about, about how to adopt ideologies that go against the grain of the worldview that they've lived from birth. To learn how to upset the apple cart, to, to create John Lewis's good trouble in the world so that we can begin to rethink the relationships of people in North America and in the world today because this uh, North American Euro-Christian abstraction has become largely globalized in this thing called international law. Um, 
You know, it's time to begin to overturn apple carts so that we can begin to imagine a different way of being in relationship with one another. So that, that's my plea to uh, the Rothko Chapel audience tonight. Kakuna. I, I have uh, several questions here, but do you have questions of each other? <laughs> Seemed like we were saying a lot of the same thing in very different ways. It, exactly. Um, well, let me toss the, this out. Um, so land is our identity. I, I think, you know, we, we all fundamentally understand that. And uh, you've both spoken to, you know, what happens now as a result of um, uh, individual property ownership and viewing the land differently. And it's no longer really about our identity. It still is for us as indigenous peoples, but it's certainly not understood that way um, otherwise. And um, Dina, can you speak to that and how just that concept differentiates environmental justice and what might be called indigenous people's environmental justice and um, or indigenous environmental justice? And um, the second part of that question is, I, I sort of want to come back to this concept of rights. And we do benefit, I mean, some, you know, people could say, well, you benefit from civil rights as, um, as indigenous people or as native peoples in the, this country. And how do we unpack that? type of a comment. Yeah, that's a tough one to unpack. There's um, because it's taken as such, it's so normalized, right? That, that, that that's what we're all striving for. That's, you know, the, the pinnacle of, um, you know, fairness and justice, but, um, but civil rights, I mean, it, it's paradoxical because, because in, in one way, you know, the concept of rights, if we think back historically on the civil rights movement during the 1960s, 1970s, um, you know, the, the civil rights movement was really led by black people. And, um, and it was their tenacity and their work that laid a foundation for other marginalized and racialized others like American Indians, like Mexican people, like Asian people, um, the work that the that Black Americans did laid that foundation so that it, and in, in a way created a template for uh, the Red Power Movement and the American Indian Movement to, um, to talk about, you know, ending the abuse, the federal abuses against American Indians. But it was, it was awkward. It's still awkward. It's because it's incomplete. I mean, this concept, even though, um, you know, we, we were able to make progress during that time that that red power movement during that era led to significant policy change to where they stopped terminating us and they created you know they passed the indian education and self-determination act which still governs 
us today, this policy of self-determination, that's a step in the right direction. There's a whole other conversation about what that actually means um, in, in practical terms. But um, but this the problem the thing about civil rights is that it's like Vine Delorius said he wrote it he said it so clearly in 1968 when he wrote um, Custer died for your sins and he he wrote a whole chapter on um, black you know the black civil rights movement and how there was a certain point at which the conversations broke down between American Indians and um, black activists because. Uh, what black activists have always been fighting for is, you know, greater inclusion into the state via civil rights. For native people, that doesn't translate. Do we want to be treated better? Yes, that's always been the message. But for for native people, it's always been about respecting the treaties, respecting the land. Stop taking our land. Stop trying to control us and turn us into Christians and turn us into white people and all of that. Um, so. So, and that, that's where the communication sort of broke down and it still breaks down today. We still cannot have that conversation. It's very awkward in social spaces to talk about why native people are not fighting for greater inclusion into the settler state. Um, yeah, we want to be treated better, but, but greater inclusion is about assimilation for us and how, how you know, for over a century we were forced into the system, into the system that ultimately seeks our elimination. Um, so, you know, so we need to keep having these conversations about why this concept of civil rights doesn't work for us. I come to this work as an environmental justice scholar, having studied environmental justice for years and coming to the conclusion that what's what looks like justice for other marginalized, racialized populations is not the same formula for us because that which we call uh, injustice, uh, environmental injustice, it has a far bigger scope than it does for 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 the rest for all the other you know ethnic minority communities that we call ej communities so um you know until we're able to have uh, our our very different histories and our very different political relationships to the state as the foundation of how we how we conceptualize justice then it's just going to be more of the same more um, more assimilation, more just get in line and, and get your civil rights. So, um, so there's a lot, a lot there. And uh, that's just, that's how I think about it. Yeah, Thank in my you, mind, Nina. In my mind, the task for American Indians today is how can we best decolonize our minds? That means reclaiming our languages and throwing off English usage that is not helpful, but in fact detracts from decolonizing. I'll give you one example. I've been trying to get rid of the word it in my English usage because there are no it's in Osage. We don't have that word, uh, the, the neuter pronoun. 
because everything has its own life. So I have an eagle wing. I should have it here, and I forgot to bring it upstairs. That eagle wing has traveled with me <coughs> to five different continents in all parts of this continent. She's kept me safe. She's given me courage, helped me speak. And yet when I entered Australia about 10 years ago, it became patently clear to me that as far as border control in Australia was concerned, she was an it, a thing, a commodified object, a piece of property that belonged to me. And the question was whether I could bring an animal part into Australia. And I'm sitting there with my relative, this eagle wing, and I'm saying, animal part? That's my relative. And I really wanted to get back on the plane and fly back to the U.S. because at least here, I know how to deal with the legal abstractions. They're enough different in Australia that I felt like I was <laughs> without a plea. Uh, and they escalated the decision from one border control agent to the next, to the next, to the next, to finally the, the, the mother of all supervisors of border control at that entry station, who scratched his head and didn't know what to say and finally looked up at me and said, Mate, are you native? I said, oh, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I'm, I'm American Indian. And he looked up at me again and he said, get out of here. And he waved me into Australia. And I grabbed my relative, put her back in her case, grabbed my other bags, and I went running for Australia before he could change his mind. Uh, but, but, but he didn't have to even let me get back on a plane. He could have taken that property then and there and destroyed her. Uh, I know that now because an Australian woman tried to enter her home country coming from Europe with a brand new alligator purse that she bought for $19,000. She forgot to do the proper paperwork to satisfy the abstraction of Canadian uh, border control law. They confiscated the person, they did indeed destroy it, $19,000 worth. I mean, it looked like a regular everyday ugly purse to me, just a, a handbag, but that's a lot of money for an American Indian. A lot of our families don't spend that much money in a whole year to take care of a family. Uh, So I'm trying to arrange my language so that I don't use the word thing anymore because we don't have the word thing in English. And when we go into ceremony out here north, south of uh, Denver in our ceremonial grounds, uh, we stopped using the English word pray a good decade or more ago. 
because it doesn't occur in any of our Indian languages, as far as I can tell. Until the missionaries came and they picked a word. For us, it was Wada. And if you go to Pahuska today, every Osage will tell you Wada. Ah, that's our word for pray. But it's not. It was our everyday word for talk. And that's what we do in ceremony when we invite in the Wanagi from the four directions. And we We would da with those Wanagi. We talk to them like they're our next door neighbors because they are. They're not in some sort of divine hierarchy between us and the heavens but rather they're on the same plane as we are. They just come from that Wanagi world because they've entered, you know, they've left this world and have entered the Wanagi world and they can come back and give us help. So we talk. That's all we do is talk in English. And there are a host of words that have no counterpart in any Indian language. I know for Osage, there's no word for God even though all Osages will tell you Wakonda is our word for God. And when the missionaries picked Wakonda to mean their notion of God, they virtually destroyed a wonderful, powerful word that we have to now go back and on our decolonizing have to recapture and reconstruct the meaning. And that's too bad. That's hard, hard work because now we've got to fight our way through a morass of English nominalizations in order to get back to the verbal foundations that were destroyed by the missionaries by picking our words to mean their words. Kakuna. We, um, you, you both have... You just uh, you keep sparking more and more questions for me, and um, I I do want to cut, sort of come back um, to uh, the point you made, um, Dina, about um, these narratives that aren't the same narratives but we tend to conflate them under different types of, um, of legal terms and concepts and so forth, civil rights being one. But um, I see that as a continuation even today, that conflation of, of narratives. And my concern around um, that is when we start doing that, we leave when we're not specific around a particular narrative, then we leave, it, be, it, be, it can be used against us, essentially. And so today, uh, just coming out of some of the recent movements, we're using the term BIPOC. And, and we all say BIPOC. And that concerns me when we begin to not name appropriately who we're talking about because naming them also recognizes them 
So this, in talk about abstractions, this term BIPOC in many ways becomes an abstracted um, term, but it, it's, it's really problematic then because it fails to recognize everything we've been talking about. It, um, and it, it is a term then that can get, um, uh, co-opt is not the word I'm thinking about, but appropriated. And, you know, then I'm not sure I'm going with all of this, but, but if you could comment on, you know, sort of this, um, these terms with each generation, with each movement that get coined in many ways perpetuate something we may be unaware of. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I'm glad that you brought that up. It's um, it's critically important, this, this term BIPOC, for those who aren't familiar, um, I, I know most people are these days, but occasionally people don't realize what the acronym stands for. And it stands for Black, Indigenous, and People of Color. It's a way to signal, you know, uh, like appropriate activism, I would say, is like kind of a very broad way of um, looking at that. Uh, it, but it's, but what it does is it's, it's based on a, an assumption of the world that's that racializes people and this is you know we have to i mean there's so many uh interconnections here um and the the history of racialization in this country is something that um ha is it keeps us trapped in a cycle of um making of disaggregating and making the difference recognizing the difference between indigenous issues and the issues of other marginalized populations. And, um, and so the, the racializing others, and it's based on this narrative that, uh, you know, the, the original, I call it the original sin narrative, like the, the, the original sin of the United States is slavery, right? Um, and we hear this often. Um, and that, that it's a recognition of, you know, the, the brutal, unspeakable histories of of that history you know 350 years of the transatlantic slave trade slap chattel slavery and all of that um and it is an original sin but it is not the original sin it is one it is one half of of another piece of it if we look at um, you know, if we if we're going to talk in those terms, like the original wrong of the U.S., like the original injustice, it really comes with the arrival onto the continent and the violent appropriation of land, and and then the genocide that unfolded, um, which makes way for the transatlantic slave trade to bring you know, stolen bodies onto stolen land in order to build this economy that we have now. Um, but in these these popular cultural narratives, BIPOC narratives, where we talk about this this original sin, we we're like we've made progress like in some way that we can talk about you know racial justice and you know the the last year and a half since uh, you know the the George Floyd um, incident last year and um, the Breonna Taylor incident, you know, this this renewed racial justice movement that we're currently experiencing, it it uh, it brings all of this up and that that 
the the racialization and it's racial injustice that's at the root of all the wrongs of the U.S. Um, but it's it's incomplete. Like the elephant in the living room in the U.S. is the history of genocide and land theft, because without that, you don't have any of that other stuff. You don't have the transatlantic slave trade. You don't have, um, you know, the the Asian, ex you know, Chinese Exclusion Act and all, you know, the, the xenophobia and racism against, you know, racialized others. So um, this is, you know, if we're talking, if racial justice, if the racial justice movement is about, um, historical accountability of this country, um, then it's never going to be complete until we have that conversation about the foundation of um, land theft and genocide and how uh, the, the system of settler colonialism is what maintains these relationships of violence against native people. And then we have to have a really honest conversation about complicity and who is complicit in that? What are the kinds of ideologies that people buy into um, when they think about full inclusion into the state? What is it that you are enacting in those projects um, to, to support the state? And those are really hard conversations, you know, when we talk about, you know, property rights and um, buying land and what about, and land justice for, for people who have been um, marginalized, um, you know, and return of land, return of land to, to other marginalized peoples. Well, what about the land that uh, it was originally stolen from? So these are very uncomfortable and painful conversations, but until we get there and begin to have those conversations, um, we are not going to be uh, supporting each other fully and completely as racialized others and get beyond this concept of race as um, the original, you know, racialization and racism as the original wrong. Um, it's, it includes it, but it's beyond that. Thank you. And I might, Tim, you yeah, I might approach that even a little differently than, than Dina. It seems to me, if I'm going to use original sin as a metaphor, that the original sin of the Christians was the invention of property, the creation of property, the conversion of the land of property. And that, I think, is really the starting point in the equation that ends up with ecological, environmental, climate disaster. It can all be traced back to that privatization of property and, and the abstractions of corporations as persons who can own property and who are free to do with that property whatever they want. They can blow up a mountain if they want, tunnel underneath a lake if they want in order to tunnel uh, crude oil under people's fresh water supply. <coughs> Another point I'd add to the discussion comes from uh, my, our colleague Barbara Mann at the uh, University of Toledo, Seneca woman. Barbara reports to us 
that by 1650 there are more Indian bodies being shipped out of Charleston than there are black bodies being shipped in. In other words, the slave trade was not only in black bodies. As late as the 1920s, there were still Indians in the state of New Mexico who were living in slavery. They weren't called slaves because that had been outlawed by the United States government, so they were called servants. But they were not being paid, they were being forced into uh, into labor, uh, you know, for, for food and, and a roof. Through my career, I've always partnered up with allies in the Black, Asian, and Latinx communities, and still do to this day. But I guess I want to finally come back to the term BIPOC and say, I really object. I object to putting Blacks first on this continent when they were not here, when it was ours. And it's not in any way to say no to the Black struggle, to the Black history of pain. It's to say, damn it, if you're going to create an acronym, please put Natives first because we were first. And I guess part of that is a bit of pain that goes back to an allied meeting back 40 plus years ago in Berkeley, California, where a black minister said to all of us, Indians, blacks, Asians, Latinos, we need to pay attention to the majority minority first. And I'm sorry to say, I haven't done this again since. I had never done it before, but I stood up and verbally took his legs out from under him because that's atrocious language. In other words, Indians be damned, there are so few of you. Let's take care of my people and forget your people. We can't do that. In order that America in its forgetfulness might remember this was ours. Let's always remember to put indigenous people first on this continent. I remember Vine Deloria was asked on a radio program uh, here in Denver uh, decades ago. Now he died in 2005. Uh, What did you all call this land before the white man came? And after he stifled a laugh on on air, he said, we called it ours. Thank you. Thank you both. Um, you know, we're, we're kind of diving now into the depth of, of, of the conversation, but I do need to shift it to bring in a few of the audience questions. Um, and uh, sort of set aside, I mean, you, you both the interrace a dozen other questions for me. Um, but this is all a part of this conversation of really thinking about worldview and thinking about the, the topic of this um, uh, presentation on rights. And we have to, as indigenous peoples, 
speak about all of this out of a, a holistic framework. We can't compartmentalize and speak to just one issue, but, but, but draw the relationship between all these issues. And it really does go back to the roots of, of the root of what, what is the problem. So um, let me read the first question. As a native Oklahoman and a descendant of the Lenape Delaware tribe of Indians, I'm interested in how the presenters feel about the Supreme Court decision honoring old treaties and ceding about half of the land in Oklahoma, especially Eastern Oklahoma, including the city of Tulsa back to various tribes. Do you consider this a so-called win for indigenous rights? Or do we refuse the restricting order in, into the Eurocentric white supremacist structure of giving land back when in the traditional worldview, no one person or government can own the land? How do we hold and honor these contradictions? I guess I should speak because I'm the Oklahoma person. Uh, in truth, in advertising, my nephew, uh, Philip Tinker, was one of the lead attorneys in that case. Uh, and I called to congratulate him. And the husband of one of my PhD students was the attorney general of the Muscogee Nation who filed that case with the Supreme Court. So I'm, I'm, I'm compromised both ways. And while I congratulated both of them, I don't think it's a big win. Absolutely not. I, I think uh, uh, Justice Gorsuch, who seemed to side with the Indians, was not because he's dealing in the complex abstraction of, of federal law and treaties, right? What he was doing was inviting the U.S. Congress to make a different decision because the U.S. government can decide tomorrow to abrogate all those treaties and leave all of those uh, uh, eastern Oklahoma nations, including the Osages, high and dry. Uh, so I did not celebrate it as a big win. Uh, and my nephew knows that, even though uh, I thought he did a really great job in presenting the case. Uh, you know, eventually, it gets us tangled up in colonization even deeper. And the job, as I said earlier, is decolonization from their courts, from Justice Gorsuch and the U.S. Supreme Court uh, in order to control our own relationship with the land, at least the land you know, where our peoples live. Kakuna, I'll say that only that much. Yeah, I can't really add much else other than to say that one of the misunderstandings of this case was that it somehow was a return of land, but it wasn't. There was no land returned to anybody. It was simply a recognition that um, that uh, of jurisdictional issues that um, that land had never been, you know, had never not been reservation land. And it's raising, I think it's going to take years until we know the, the actual fallout from this decision. 
um, because I know that there are behind the scenes things going on where they're having to work out these issues between with the state um, and, and the tribal governments. And I know that there are compromises being made and what kind of compromises are going to be made? What kind of power is are the tribal governments going to um, going to shy against? What kind of power are they going to take? These are there's some very troubling questions about all of that that um, that will remain to be seen, and I think that it's going to be years before we really know. But uh, it, it, I thought it was an interesting decision. But but I'm I'm with Tink. I don't think it's something that necessarily should be um, celebrated. Um, I think it's problematic, and he's absolutely right that, um, you know, this is one of the things, one of the many elephants in the living room about the American legal system is this concept of plenary power that um, that the the Congress has has reserved for itself this right to have complete and absolute authority over Native nations. And um, the entire foundation, the entire framework of federal Indian law is really not it's not based on justice. It's not based on delivering justice for Native people, especially when you look at um, particular uh, doctrines like the doctrine of domestic dependent nationhood or um, the, the Major Crimes Act or any, you know, countless other kinds of laws that have worked to, to diminish our sovereignty and self-determination within our own territories. So, yeah, I, the the it's going to be a while before we really know what the McGirt decision is going to bring us. Thank you. The next question, um, what are the opportunities and challenges related to working with non-Indian allies on issues such as climate change, environmental stewardship, and the like? The challenges? Um, I think, I mean, this is some, something that, you know, a, a place that I do a lot of work around. And I think the the challenges are really understand, having non-Native allies understand that our issues are not, you know, going back to what I was saying before and this concept of BIPOC, right? BIPOC, that, you know, if we're just inclusive like that, then we'll you know, we'll be on the right side and we'll be helping to deliver justice. But but that for in Indian people, our issues are different. We're, are diff we, we care about, a lot about the same kinds of things, but ultimately, you know, what we care about is not losing our lands and not losing our self-determination and, and regaining our lands to the degree that that's even possible. And it is possible because it is happening, but, um, but non-Native people really need to, to understand their histories. And if we're going to get to this place of accountability for this brutal history and this structure of settler colonialism that is bent on our elimination, then then everybody has to be in the position of asking really hard questions about what it is that they're committed to. You know, what what are you complicit in? What are you what are you working for? What are you willing to give up? What are you willing to fight for? And uh, you know, in a country built on individualism and individual rights, what country 
foolish people. And COVID saw COVID demonstrated this to us in the last year and a half. That um, has never been clearer what what a country built on rugged individualism brings us, and and it's and it's brought us to our knees. Like you know, where you have half the country not willing to get vaccinations because all they care about is themselves. They don't they don't seem to connect that. Uh, that the vaccination is about protecting other people, like beyond yourself. So, um, so these are again all the the tough questions that need to be uh, that individuals need to ask themselves. And you know, how do you benefit? How do you benefit from um, this history of stolen land and genocide? Thank you. And, and that answers, we've got several questions along along the, in the same vein um, of, you know, how can we be effective and respectful allies um, to Indian people? But let me um, ask this, this question um, from the audience. Can settlers truly decolonize their minds and actions, as this is already so challenging to do so for Indigenous people? or American Indians? Well, let me start anyway. I, I really think people got to move beyond the language of settler. That's really a dangerous euphemism. Settler sounds way too benign that their colonialism was somehow to come here and settle the land and somehow that justifies their owning our grandmother. I don't know what to recommend at this point, but the word settler must be decolonized. Call it what it was. Call it the invasion and call themselves the invader class. Uh, if you want to be allies with Indians, do something other than using a name that seems to imply that it's okay to be living on Indian land. Because at this point, until we have land back, until our relationship with Grandmother Earth is restored, nothing on this continent is okay. Can we live here together? Yeah, but there are going to have to be lots and lots of changes as we try to get there. Kakuna, I'll leave it at that. Thank you. Uh, I, I'm just scrolling uh, through a lot of questions that are coming in. Um, I just want to share this comment. Um, fantastic conversation. However, it is important to remember that the power movements of so-called civil rights movements, they were totally anti-assimilation. The Chicana movement rejected class and cultural oppression and envisioned a revolutionary social change. I totally agree with the American Indian view. Oh, go ahead. Can I speak to that? Sure. I'm here, sorry. Go ahead. Here in Denver, the American Indian Movement of Colorado 
and the Chicano movement, Crusade for Justice, worked very closely hand in hand back in the 70s and still walk together uh, in the year 2021. So you know, I, I certainly understand that, but I don't want to lose track of the difference between the black struggle for integration and for instance, Deloria's refusal to buy into integration language uh, in order to include Indians in the Poor People's Mark March uh, in the early 60s. His response to King was, our interests are very different. We've been forced into their inclusion and we want out to form our own communities and to be free from uh, you know, their, their governance. So let me just say that much. Kakuna. Thank you. And um, thank you, Tink, for raising this issue around the term settler. Um, I'm still trying to figure out when the term emerged or what did I miss along the way, because it, it just feels like it's being used uh, more and more. And um, I, I've been trying to understand it as well. Um, let me just, uh, I know we're getting close to the end of time here. Um, we do, we have received in this, um, I, I just want to share this with both of you, um, a lot of great talks, appreciate the talk, fantastic conversations. Um, so, so please know that, but I think the question, um, that's, um, let me, let me close with this question. As a non-native person, how might one be effective and, and, and a respectful ally? What steps can I take and encourage others to take? It comes up a lot in the rooms that I talk in. Um, and I don't know that there's one satisfying pat answer to it, but um, you know, I would just ask, how do you, how do you in, Age with the native community. How are you? What kind of relationship are you in with the native community where you live? Do you know who the native people are where you live? Do you know who the you know the original people are? What what is your engagement with them, and how can you support them? Like oh, you know, start in your own backyard. Um, to me, that's where where it really. Uh, comes down to. I mean, you can give money to big native corporate native organizations and things like that. But, but uh, ultimately, how are you? What are you doing to decolonize the land? And and relationships between the tribes, and and dominant society. And I would say, don't fall prey to donating money to Catholic boarding schools who send pictures of poor Indians that are about 150 years old. Um, there are other ways to support Indians besides supporting the churches who are preying on Indians. And I mean that P-R-E-Y, not A-Y. Um, although they, I suppose they do both, huh? Uh, join with Indian movement people 
but be ready to take leadership from Indians. There's one story one of my students brought back from Cannonball from, from Standing Rock during the Dapple protest of a white New Ager who was trying to instruct Indians in how to do a water ceremony because she didn't think they were doing it right. That, that simply won't float. We, we know how to do what we need to do. Come join us. Don't tell us how to do it. I mean, that, that's the, 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 that's the uh, occupational hazard of being a, a Euro-Christian white person, I suppose, is white, white people are born uh, growing up uh, telling others what to do. Uh, and that doesn't stop when they come into an Indian activist uh, movement. But you all have to pull back a little bit and resist that urge. And we appreciate you. We need our allies. We've got to have them. There aren't enough Indians on this continent to stand up to the hundreds of millions of people you all have, uh, have deposited, settled on this land, our grandmother. I want to thank uh, both um, you, Dina, and uh, you, Tink, for this discussion. And as I said, we were just sort of, we're just beginning to um, sort of drop a little bit deeper into the conversation. And I would have loved to to said, okay, wait a minute, let's talk about the term decolonization and um, what we mean by that term and where it's going. But there's no time. Yeah, another conversation. So. Thank you both. Um, I'd like to turn um, the final remarks over to David. Thank you all so much for inviting us tonight into your space, sharing your stories and inviting us to be listeners. I was thinking a little bit about what we could do, and uh, the we is fairly general, but let's just say parochial geography we, here in Texas, uh, I think about the Texas Education Agency and the school books, the textbooks that have exercised cultural genocide for decades as they have written out very intentionally narratives of Indian people, tribal people, First Nations, intentionally written and still going on today. Or in our legislature where the Speaker of the House says you cannot use certain terms in a debate because it will be divisive. So I think you've left us with food to thought of thought, not only here because it's a night, viewers are from probably all over the country, if not other countries. So a lot of, lot of things to think about. And one thing we never say here is goodbye. We say we see you in another iteration. So this conversation, I hope is just 1.0 of one that will continue uh, in the months, if not years ahead. So I thank you for uh, giving us uh, a lead and a lean into another conversation. And again, I just, your generosity of spirit, your generosity of hospitality of bringing in, us into a narrative, I really thank you very much on behalf of the Rothko Chapel. Tonight as we, uh, leave this space for, for the time being. Uh, I want to thank all of you that joined us uh, virtually 
and for taking time out of your evening uh, to learn and to listen and think about how you can be uh, involved. We, we really greatly appreciate it. I also want to let everybody know that this program is being recorded and will be available for viewing on both our website and Vimeo page. So we ask that you uh, share the recording broadly and also use it as a time for storytelling and engagement. I also want to thank everyone who helped plan, participate, and financially support tonight's program and the development of the series. The final program in this series will be held on October 13th at 6 p.m. Central, and it will be titled Defending and Advancing the Rights of Immigrants with Charles Kamasaki of Unidos U.S. and Sister Norma Pimentel of Catholic Charities Rio Grande Valley and moderated by Francis Valdez of Houston in action. The series will culminate next year with a multi-day symposium and that'll give us a chance to explore these issues more fully and also in an intersectional kind of way. And please watch our website for more information about the upcoming program and the symposium. And that address is rothkochapel.org. And you can learn more about the program content as well as how to register. So as we leave this evening, wishing all good things to all of you, be well, and until we meet again, good night.